0: Thank you, Barbara, and Carlos, and Jung, and thank you all for worshiping with us tonight. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We uh, concluded the Old Testament, and uh, in a new year, I want to begin with the New Testament, and Lord willing, uh, at the end of this series of one sermon on each book, we have 27 left then, then at the end, I'd like to teach a series on the book of Revelation. So that's been my intent the whole time and I look forward to sharing with you in that and we begin our journey, our, our second part of this journey in the book of Matthew this evening. I wonder how do you feel about silence? There are moments in our lives, aren't there, when silence is good for instance, when the grand puppy was loaded up after five long weeks since Thanksgiving and got in the back of the Mustang and went back to Waco and our house became quiet again, that was a good thing. That's a good kind of silence. But some silence makes us uneasy if we turn on our favorite radio station and the number appears on the dial. But there's no sound coming through the speakers. That's a a sort of panicky feeling. What's going on? We don't like radio silence. Or if we get home and all the cars are in the driveway and we walk in and say hello and nobody responds to us, then we wonder, what does that mean? But perhaps the most difficult silence for us is that sense that the heavens are silent, that we're calling out and we're not receiving an answer. And there was a period of time... In the history of Israel, for some 400 years, when there was radio silence after the prophets that we studied one by one, after Malachi's voice finally fell silent, there was a period of of hundreds of years that we call the intertestamental period. It's not that nothing happened in those days. Lots of things happened in the world in that period of time. Kingdoms rose and, and kingdoms fell. It's not that nothing happened in Israel during that time, because things did happen. We trace Hanukkah back to that time when Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer, who was the Hammer long before Jim Adler, the Texas Hammer, was. Judas Maccabeus was a great leader of a revolt, and there was this celebration of lights, which is Hanukkah, and all of that is part of that intertestamental period. And there are many people who take books that were written, because literature was written during that time. Bell and the dragon, for instance, was written during that time. The, the book of Judith was written during that time. First and second Maccabees were written during that time. And it's not that God wasn't speaking or saying something to some of his people, but we don't have any record of revelation from that period of time that we look at and say, now that feels like the Old Testament does, or that feels like the New Testament does. And there's that period of time when, when there's this sort of spiritual drifting, and then we read in the book of Luke, for instance, that things begin to happen, that an angel is dispatched and, and speaks, and a man in the temple discovers that his wife, who was barren, is going to have a child, and that child will be John the Baptist. And then we recognize that, that this same angel goes and speaks to Mary. And we've just come through that season of study, and even studied in the book of Matthew about that. But at the end of that silence, there's a voice crying in the wilderness There is John the Baptist. All four Gospels tell us about him. All four Gospels tell us something about John the Baptist. And he begins to preach. And he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he comes, um, as is prophesied, to turn the people back to God. And then after John the Baptist comes Jesus. And we have four Gospel accounts of the life of Of Jesus, at least four that we count in our Bible. There are others you understand. You've probably read about them or if you read uh, uh, the literature of Dan Brown or or saw that movie, which was woeful, by the way. But if you did, um, you realize that um, there were other gospels that were written, but we don't believe that those gospels correspond to these gospels. And why Why does God speak through Matthew to tell the story in the particular way that he does? And how is Matthew different from the other Gospels that we have? After the silence, after the 400 years, we open the Scriptures to Matthew and find this genealogy, this record of the heritage of Jesus. And then at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And so I'll begin reading at the beginning and the end, and then we'll um, fill in the gaps, tracing a particular theme that I think is helpful for us, the theme of authority. So would you stand with me as we read God's Word tonight? Matthew chapter 1. I just want to read verse 1 to you. You'll recognize this from our recent sermon, Five Women and a Baby. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It simply says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in chapter 28, beginning with verse 16, we find the end of Matthew's story where it says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. of the age. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Matthew tells us the good news about Jesus, and if we were to divide up this book, we would discover that there are four chapters of an introduction. It begins with that genealogy. And from the very beginning, he lays it out that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. That Jesus is a descendant of David. In the first verse, he calls him the Christ. So Matthew shows us his hand from the very beginning. He wants us to know who Jesus is, that he's not just an ordinary person, but even in showing us his genealogy, he shows us who he descends from. We saw those, those remarkable Gentile women whom God chose as part of this heritage of Jesus. But we must not miss Abraham and David who are highlighted there. It's as if he's saying, this one who descended is the fulfillment. And Matthew uses this over and over again so that the promise may be fulfilled. The words of the prophets may be fulfilled. There was this prediction of a Messiah, this one who would descend from Abraham, who would descend from the house of David, who would be born in Ephratah or Bethlehem as it came to be called. This is the story of Jesus. I remember years ago one of our sons came home from school and this one is the, the, the more fair of the two, the fairest of them all so to speak. And, and uh, he came home from school and and he said, everybody in my class is descendant of somebody famous. In my class, he said, almost everybody descended from George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And I thought to myself, I doubt that. But I, I, I just listened to his story and he said, we didn't descend from anybody famous. I said, oh, no, 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 no. You misunderstand. Our, our, my great aunt Hattie, who was an artist in East St. Louis, Illinois, when we lived there, when I was six years old, took me aside one day and told me that our family has descended from Pocahontas. You, you, you cannot believe the joy of this little boy. He was so excited. He couldn't wait to go tell his teacher the next day. He marched into Nottingham Country Elementary School, marched right up to his teacher's desk and said, I am a descendant of Pocahontas. And she looked at our little transparent child, this little fair child with blonde hair and blue eyes and said, no, you're not, and sent him to his desk. And he came home so frustrated. She wouldn't believe me, dad, that we are descended from Pocahontas. I don't know whether we are or not, but what we know about Jesus is that when he's tracing this heritage, he's showing us Jesus came from someone, from somebody, and Jesus is somebody, and he gives Jesus these titles. So we're going to read that Jesus is the son of David, and Jesus Is the Christ, and He wants us to know that Jesus is greater than Jonah and greater than the temple and greater than Solomon. It's Matthew. You would almost think it would be in the Gospel of John that we would read. Jesus will say again and again, One who is greater than the temple is here. One who is greater than Jonah is here. One who is greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the greatest of them all. And He chooses Matthew to tell His story. It's not the first time Matthew has been chosen. Levi, there collecting taxes for the Roman government, clearly living in two worlds straddling the fence between being a Jew and serving the Roman government, the equivalent of the Roman IRS in that day despised as a tax collector and one day Jesus comes by and says come and follow me and there's some audacity in that for Jesus to say I am someone that you should devote your life to, worth giving up your job, worth giving up your future, come and follow me Jesus had said it earlier to the sons of Zebedee and they left their father behind, he, he had said it Earlier to others, and one by one, Jesus called them and invested them with his authority. He teaches, he ministers, and there's this introduction in the first four chapters that gives us the introduction, and then in in chapters um, chapters. 26 to 28, we have the end of Jesus' story and the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But then in between, we would say there are five sections of Jesus' teaching. Nobody gives us more of Jesus' teaching. Than Matthew does. And so we find these, these sections that are outlined there, chapters five through nine, which begin with the Sermon on the Mount. We're studying online uh, in the mornings, um, chapters five through nine. And there's a, there's a teaching section and then a narrative, a bit of story that follows each of those sections. Five sections of Jesus' teaching corresponding, we might say, to the five books of the Torah at the beginning of the Old Testament. What is Matthew saying to us? Jesus is the new Moses. He's the one who's delivering the law. And when Jesus teaches in chapter 7, verse 29, here's what they notice about Jesus' life. He taught as one who had authority and not as their scribes and teachers. There was something about Jesus, something different about Jesus, something compelling that captured the imagination and the attention of the crowds that followed him. And in the chapters that follow, we'll see that there comes opposition to Jesus in chapters 10 through 12. And then there's this polarization in chapters 13 through 16 between those who follow Jesus and those who refuse to follow Jesus. And then in chapters 16 to 18, we have, again, this teaching and narrative section where we, we find Jesus encouraging his disciples. And there's that pivotal moment when Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? Right there in the middle of chapter 16, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, shh, the messianic secret that We don't want at this moment to reveal that. And Jesus begins to tell them he's going to be crucified. And Peter, right after he's at his best, is at his worst. And Jesus has to say, get thee behind me, Satan. And then there's more teaching. And Jesus teaches about judgment in chapters 19 to 25. And then the crucifixion that follows. That's a sort of broad outline of the book. But if you were to look at the Gospel of Matthew, as I did some years ago as I was reading, as I am right now, reading at the beginning of a year, the word that sort of jumped off the page to me was this word, authority. It seems that Jesus taught with authority and, and he healed with authority. So the centurion said, I understand what it's like to be under authority. If, you, if I say go, my men go. If I say stay, they stay. So you don't even have to come to my house to heal. Just speak the word and it will be done. And Jesus is astonished at this man's faith. There's a centurion, there's a Canaanite woman, and in this most Jewish of the Gospels, we already see that Jesus is for all people. And Jesus possesses this authority, but that's not all. Jesus provides this authority. It's not just that Jesus commands authority, but that he confers authority to his disciples in chapter 10. He sends them out with power to cast out demons and heal every disease and tells them, I want you to go and preach this good news. And they go out and do what he says. And Jesus gives them authority to continue his work in the world. And it's after the resurrection that we come to the passage that we have read, where Jesus has said uh, through the angel to the women, go ahead of me to Galilee, you'll find me. I'll be waiting there for you. And they come up on this mountain. And I love about Matthew that he's so incredibly honest with us. And he says, Jesus shows up right on cue and the disciples are there and some of them worship Jesus, but some of them doubt. And maybe for the sake of those who doubt, Jesus just reminds all the authority in heaven and in earth belongs to me. And this has strategic implications for your lives. Can I just ask you tonight, How is it that the church of Jesus Christ serves the one who has a corner on the market of authority? And sometimes we live our lives bumbling and stumbling, not authoritatively, but apologetically. Can I just say to you, the greatest authority in all the world, the author of life, authorizes you to live authoritatively, not in an authoritarian way, commanding and and pushing people around, but with all the authority that is conferred to those who would be called the people of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, empowered by the resurrection, you and I have been given the greatest power in all the world for the greatest purpose in all the world with the greatest promise in all the world let me just sort of unpack this for us tonight and show you first of all that as the king of heaven and earth Jesus possesses the power to do everything that needs to be done. Let me just kind of show it to you there in chapter 7 after this marvelous Sermon on the Mount. I won't teach that tonight. I'll teach it every weekday morning for the next few months. But, but let me just say at the end of that, they listened to everything Jesus said. After the Beatitudes, after the Similitudes, where Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. After Jesus tells them, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect and forgive the way he forgive, And after he taught them how to pray and, and how to, to fast and how to give. And, and after he, he shows them very clearly, there are two ways to live your life. At the end of that, they looked at him and they said, Authority. Not dunamis, power. That's not the word in Greek. But exousia, from the word excessin, which means it's permissible. In other words, nothing is impermissible to Jesus. Jesus has all the delegated authority from the Father. Jesus doesn't say, I came up with the power. He says, now, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, this power has been given to me. But it was evident in his life as he taught. So Jesus will teach them in parables. And Matthew will say, without a parable, he didn't teach them. He wanted to teach them. And the disciples will say, why don't don't you speak more clearly? Why do you use these parables? And Jesus says, because it's been given to you, my people, to understand what I'm saying. And some people, as Isaiah said, they they will hear, but they won't really listen. They will see, but they will not perceive. But I want you to understand what I am trying to teach. And Jesus had the authority to teach Matt Woodley has written a a new little commentary on the gospel of Matthew and in that commentary he tells the story of being in a church league softball game and you know church league softball can be tougher than industrial league softball. In fact the umpires say we'd rather we'd rather referee we'd rather be umpires for industrial league than for church league because church league is rougher and on this particular night there was a question about a rule and the coach from the church league team Matt's coach came out and he was having a heated exchange like this was the world series or something with this umpire saying you don't understand and the umpire said no, you don't understand. Reached in his back pocket, pulled out the rule book, page 27, column 3, paragraph 1. It says that I have ruled in the right way. And the, the coach was still not satisfied, and he got right in the face, just about this close to the umpire, and he said, I don't think you're interpreting that in the right way. And the umpire said, Well, that's really interesting because, sir, I'm the one who wrote the rule book. I think I know what I'm talking about. And that's the way that Jesus taught. Jesus didn't teach as one who didn't understand this and didn't understand that. But Jesus taught as one who had comprehensive understanding. He, he knew. And so when he taught, they, they knew there was something different about him. Remember in the Gospel of John, they send the temple guard to arrest Jesus. And, and they come back without him. And they say, why didn't you arrest him? He said, arrest him. He arrested us with his words. We've never heard a man teach like this man. We've heard you guys teach, but we've never heard anybody. It's always disconcerting for the preacher to hear. We, we've never heard anybody teach like that guy, like Jesus. We couldn't arrest him. He arrested us with his words. Jesus taught with authority. Jesus touched people with authority. And what I want you to see in chapters 8 and 9 is that, that sometimes when Jesus healed somebody, the Pharisees would show up, the, the religious leaders would show up and say, by what authority? Chapter 21, they're very point blank with him. By what authority did you do this miracle? What right do you have, they say, to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, hey look, the Sabbath, um, was made for people. People weren't made for the Sabbath. You misunderstand. You, he, he pronounces woes on them. He says, woe to you because you want to keep the most meticulous little letter of the law, but you absolutely miss the spirit of the law. Jesus healed. And some people questioned his authority. And I've, I'm convinced they did because they were content to live in their own lack of authority, believing in themselves. They refused to believe in him. But listen to this. Some of them marveled at his authority. For instance, when, when the centurion came to him and recognized Jesus' authority, Jesus marvels at him. And when I read that again this week, I wondered, is Jesus ever amazed at our faith? Because he was amazed at that man's faith. He was amazed at the faith of the Canaanite, the Syrophoenician woman who came and said, I, I, you know, don't give the bread to the dogs. Yeah, but even the dogs get some of the crumbs. And Jesus just stops right then and said, did you hear that? Did you hear the way she trusted in me, the way she recognized my authority? And we have to go, I think, to the Gospel of John chapter 1 to sort of complete this thought. I love the way the the, the Gospels augment each other and supplement each other. But it's John who tells us, to as many as believed him, to as many as who who believed on his name, to as many as received him, to them he gave thee, here it is, authority to become the children of God. It was with authority that he called his disciples and said, Come and follow me. And it's with authority in chapters 27 and 28 that we discover Jesus emerges victoriously. Chapter 28 emerges victoriously from the tomb. Paul Jones is a a priest in another city. He said, Your perspective in life depends on where you set up shop. And I set up shop at the entrance to an empty tomb. And that makes all the difference in the way that I see life. I want to say tonight that the way you look at the world is determined by the way you set up shop. Where do you set up shop? And, and I, I cast my lot with Paul Jones, I have to say. I set up my life at the entrance to an empty tomb, and that makes all the difference. That's why Matthew wrote this. He wanted us to know that Jesus taught with authority, that Jesus touched people's lives with authority, that Jesus triumphed over the tomb with authority. But that's not the end of the story, is it? It's not just that Jesus had authority but that he gave authority to his church. So in chapter 10, he says, go out, make disciples. Go out, heal, go out and do the work that I've called you to do. And you don't have to be afraid to go out and do what I've called you to do because I am with you and I will empower you to do that work. And I just want you to see what Jesus says. He says, you have the authority to minister. You have the authority to do what you're supposed to do. And I wonder sometimes when Jesus looks at his church, if he wonders... Why are they not exercising the authority that I have given to them? I remember reading some years ago, it was a little cartoon about a pastor and he's looking at the the church growth chart and their church is in decline and he says to his associate, why do you think we're in decline? And his associate answers him honestly and says, I'm not exactly sure, but it may be the way you end every sermon with, but then again, what do I know? (laughs) Well, if that's the way you ended every sermon, probably small wonder that the church would be in decline. What is our authority? Do we have to be ordained to have authority, to be authorized to minister? Maybe you're like me. I was doing ministry a long time before I was ordained. Somebody has said your baptism is your ordination. And I wonder how we will make a difference in the world. We have been called to minister and authorized not only to minister, but to make disciples. So we come to this passage that I read to you at the end in chapter 28 and discover we have the greatest power in all the world. What did they know about Jesus? He had authority. Jesus had the authority to do what he needed to do and they knew that about him. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth, a preacher went to a little boy and said, young man, I'll give you an apple if you can tell me something God can do. Little boy looked up and said, sir, I'll give you a bushel of apples if you can tell me something God can't do. Our God is able. He is able to do all things, to do all things exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Greatest power in all the world. Triumphant resurrection power. And then he says, therefore, go and make disciples. Why has God given us this power? He's given it to us with a specific purpose in mind that we would make disciples of all nations. And when you look at that, it says, uh, go and make disciples and baptize and teach. And I wonder, which of those verbs do you think is the central verb? It's very clear in the Greek grammatical construction. You might say, well, it's go. We're supposed to go, but that's not the primary verb there. Or you say, it's baptized. We're Baptists after all. It's got to be baptized. Or, or teach. We need to teach because discipleship is so important. Listen, the central verb is make disciples. The the others are all participles actually. It's as you go Make disciples of all nations. And how do we do that? By baptizing, by teaching all things. So to make disciples, you have to go. You can't stay where you are. And Eddie has already challenged the executive staff. And now we're going to challenge the uh, staff as we go on retreat in a couple of weeks. And then we're gonna challenge the church that this would be a year of evangelism, of intentional relationships. As you go, everywhere you go. For instance, where you were today, You were supposed to be making disciples. Where you go tomorrow, you're supposed to be making disciples. I've been working out at Bally's for all these years since my brother sold me his membership when I moved to Houston. He had two memberships, he didn't need them. And so I bought one of those memberships and I've been going to Bally's. But all these years, I've been thinking, that's a great place to work out. And it occurred to me recently, that's a great place to make disciples. For instance, um, When you sit down in a restaurant tonight and you're dealing with the waiter or the waitress and maybe they're hurried and maybe they don't bring you exactly. The way you talk to that waitress, that's about making disciples. The way, boy, I'm going to meddle here. The way you tip that waiter, that's about making disciples. I don't mean to say that disciples are bought, but I tell you what, it's a strange paradox that my friends who've been waiters through the years say the one crowd that they don't want to receive are the people who are getting out of church because they know about those people they're not going to tip and they're going to stay all afternoon and occupy that booth and they're going to mistreat them in the way they talk to them. And if they make a mistake, they're going to penalize them for it. And I want to say to you tonight, as you go, everywhere, did, did you think we were just going to make disciples here? No, he said, it's as you go, as you go out from here. This is the huddle. Now, we got to go play the game and you're going to make disciples by what you do this week. And the only way we can make disciples, as far as I can tell, is by wooing people into relationship with Jesus Christ. And we don't do that by being angry and obnoxious. So we've got to live like Jesus if we're going to invite people to be like Jesus because they're not going to believe we can help them become like Jesus if we're not like Jesus. Does that make sense? As you go greatest purpose in all the world, make disciples. How do we do that? Well, we have to baptize. I think we understand this part. I, I notice in evangelical Christianity these days, there's a de-emphasis on baptism. People say, I don't need to be baptized, really? Because Jesus commands it. I think that would make it important. You say, oh, that's enough. You know, I just love God. and I love his word. No, I mean, I mean it's a step of obedience. And that's why we emphasize that. He says, teach them. What do we teach them? Everything he commanded that's what all this teaching in the gospel of Matthew is about we got all of Jesus teaching here and now we get to teach that over and over again and that's how we make disciples because disciples are apprentices and I'll tell you something about disciples you'll make the same kind of disciples I'll make the same kind of disciples we'll make the same kind of disciples that we are So what kind of disciples are we? You have to be a disciple before you can make a disciple. And so we baptize and we teach. And here's the thing. We've got the greatest power in all the world, all authority. We've got the greatest purpose in all the world, make disciples. Now here's the greatest promise in all the world. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Don't you think those disciples knew that when we get into the book of Acts and they, it says they continued to do and to teach the same things that Jesus did and taught. And what happens when they, when when John and Peter walk into that temple after Peter is the preacher at Pentecost, you don't think when Jesus, when Peter kept missing it and kept misunderstanding and denied him three times and Jesus restores him at the end of the Gospel of John. Don't you think Jesus knows the whole time, this man is my voice on Pentecost. He's the one who's going to stand up and preach. And I guess that's why Jesus is so patient with me. Maybe that's why he's so patient with you, with us, is he understands not just who we've been, not just who we are, but who we can be and so Jesus says I- I'm going to give you all the authority you need and I want you to make disciples and when it gets really tough when they throw you in prison Peter and you wonder if you're ever going to emerge Paul when they beat you in Philippi this is what you need to know even there especially there I am with you when they stone Stephen to death he'll look up and he'll see me standing At the right hand of the Father in honor of this one who is giving his life. And here's what I want you to know. While you're using the greatest power in all the world for the greatest purpose in all the world, here's the promise. God is with us. Now here's my question When when Peter and John go and they, they heal the lame man, silver and gold I don't have, but such as I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And they raise this man to his feet. And what do the people say when they see these disciples? By what authority? What right do you have to do what you're doing? And they already have the answer. And here's what troubles me. I don't know many people who are asking me today or you today, the church today, by what authority are you doing those amazing things in the name of Jesus? By what authority are you doing it? And here's the thing I think. They're not asking about that authority because we're not living authoritatively. So here's your commission for a new year. Here's the great commission for a new year. The author of life authorizes you to make disciples with authority, to transform the city we live in, to bring people to Christ and to bring them to full-fledged followers of Jesus Christ. And you have all the authority you need to do that. You have all the reason you need to do that. You have the command you need to do that, make disciples. And when it gets tough, here's the promise. The one who gave you the authority is with you. God is never more with us than when we are doing what he has called us to do and I think this is what Jesus had in mind that while we did this not only would we be changed but the world would be changed. Some years ago I read Matt Friedman who um, had been a city councilman in the city of Jackson, Mississippi and and they'd had a, a a scandal in that city the president of the city council and another member had been in some shady sketchy business deal with some uh business of ill repute and had given them some tax break and now and now the whole city was in disarray because um The city council president was in jail and so was another one of the city council members. And they, as you can imagine, called a public hearing on it. And they put the remaining city council up there in front, these panelists, and and asked them. And, And the first question from the moderator, he turned to Matt Friedman and said, Matt, how did this happen in our city of Jackson, Mississippi? Who's to blame for this? And Matt was a little surprised at the question, but he had prepared his answer. He knew what he was going to say. Here's what he was going to say. You want to know whose fault it is? It's the guy who made the shady business deal, and that's why he's in jail right now, because we we are a nation of laws, and he broke the law, and that's why we are where we are. But before he could answer, from the back, a distinguished gentleman stood up and said, you want to know who's to blame? I'm to blame. And everybody in the room turned around and looked and saw that it was John Perkins, the Bible teacher in that city, the great man of God in that city, the man who stood for justice in that city. And somebody said, John, what do you mean? He said, I've been teaching the Bible for 30 years in this city. You would think in 30 years of teaching the Bible, this city would have been changed enough that what our city council president did would have been unthinkable. But I've been teaching the Bible And the city has not changed. So if you're looking for somebody to blame, lay it on me. Lay all of it on me. Well, that sort of ended the meeting that night. Nobody else had anything to say. Nobody else wanted to blame anybody. But when you hear that story, do you like me think, yeah, Perkins is engaging in a bit of hyperbole there. He's taking blame he didn't need to, to take. I mean, maybe he's just grandstanding, just trying to sound important. But you know what I think? I think he was telling the truth. I have a friend who says um, he had a dream recently and it was just like he was having a conversation with the Lord and he said to the Lord, Lord, the world's a mess. When are you gonna do something about this messy world we live in? And he said, the Lord looked right at him and said, that's why I put you here. You do something about it. He said, I woke up from my dream and I realized I needed to live differently. I come to you tonight to tell you when we look at our world, we can say, look what the world has come to or we can say with Matthew, look who has come to the world and you and I can live in the authority that he's given to us and make a difference this week. I pray that you will. I pray that you'll live in the authority of Jesus Christ as Gerard Manley Hopkins, that great poet said, but I say more, the just man, the just woman, justices, keeps grace that keeps all her goings, graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, through the features of our faces. Be Christ. Be Christ followers in a world that still needs him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for your transforming power. Forgive us, Lord, for living apologetically in a world that needs what you have given us. And this week, Lord, I pray that we would receive again the authority that we need to do everything you want us to do so that when Saturday night comes, a week from now, if we have not lived for you, if we have not done what you told us to do, we'll be without excuse, Lord, because by your word, through the gospel of Matthew, We know better. And since we know better, Father, would you help us this week to live better? I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.